Hey everybody, if you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. Hey everybody, the Other People Podcast is a listener-supported program. All episodes of this show are completely free. More than 500 episodes and counting, all available free of charge. You can listen online, you can listen on Stitcher, on iTunes, on iHeartRadio, you name it. You can listen on the Other People app. There's an official app. That too is free. Everything's free. So I count on the support of listeners to keep things rolling. If you would like to support this program, just go to patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Okay? All right. Thanks. You are not alone. You have found other people. You and I have a friend in common. Every stupid thing that a writer could do, I've done. I think it's really beautiful. Jake, what a struggle, you know? It was incredible. You know, your head exploded seeing what was really there. And now here's your host, Brad Listy. Just one person at just one time. So, hey, everybody. How's it going? Welcome <laughs> right. to the Other People Podcast. This is the Other People Show. I'm Brad Listy. I'm here in Los Angeles. It's nice to be with you. Thanks for tuning in. I have uh, Rachel Lyon on the program today. She has a debut novel out from Scribner. It is called Self-Portrait with Boy. It has been receiving rave reviews. It just got in, uh, reviewed on uh, Fresh Air. Did you hear that? Maureen Corrigan, rave review. So uh, the book just uh, published days ago. Rachel is on her book tour, her first ever book tour. She was nice enough to stop by when she was here in town. We had a great conversation. That is coming up in just a moment. I would, uh, I would be remiss if I did not wish you a happy Valentine's Day. Happy Valentine's Day, everybody. I hope you're doing well. I hope that this day is not uh, onerous for you. I hope that if you're in a relationship, just calm down, first of all. You don't need to show off. We know you're in love. Just relax. If you're not in a relationship, don't give this day permission to get you down. It doesn't matter. Who cares? Go to the movies alone. Go to dinner alone. Endure the sad stares of couples as they happily coo at one another over sushi. You know what I'm saying? Just let it be. Just go with it. Don't give the day more power than it deserves. Holidays bother me. You guys know this. I've talked about this ad nauseum before. I'm not going to give you my uh, diatribe in full but uh, I just got to say, you know, I don't like when uh, emotions or feelings are enforced upon me through some sort of collective decision that I had nothing to do with that was probably driven by some corporation or at least partially driven by some corporation or, so, you know, some conglomerate 
of corporations with a vested financial interest in seeing to it that we all have to buy chocolate and flowers. You know, just stop already. Okay? I love my wife. We're in love. I tell her every day. Do we, do we really need to have a day? I think I got this. I don't need a reminder. It's like Thanksgiving. Like, I'm grateful, okay? I'm glad I have food. I get it. Do you like this music? <laughs> I do like this music. It's very wise. It's a little ridiculous, but that's what I like about it. Uh, Rachel Lyon is my guest. She uh, was uh, just over here yesterday. I believe it was yesterday. She sat down right across from me. We had a great conversation. I always love catching authors uh, as their uh, first novel or first book uh, rolls out. It's a good moment to catch someone. And uh, I had the uh, pleasure of talking with her and I hope you guys enjoy the conversation. Here she is, folks. This is Rachel Lyon. Her book, one more time, is called Self-Portrait with Boy. Part of me wants to believe, and I don't know. I don't know. Yeah, no, I believe this. <laughs> that if your work is making people angry, it's worth something. You know? Oh, yeah. There's something really constructive in like starting a dialogue, no matter whether that's a positive or a negative dialogue. So putting your work out there and getting any response that's valuable. So like, you know? even like, okay, so let me bring up a recent example of like something that I witnessed. And this is how I usually witness these things. It's mm -hmm. like watching social media freak out yeah. over an essay. And so it's like this Katie Royfe. Is that how you pronounce her name? I think so. Royfe? Royfe, Royfe. I think so. So I, you know, that was a recent example where I was like, wow, like she got under a lot of people's skin and then I read it and I, you know, I'm always this person who's like, well, I, I kind of see that. Yeah. But then I read the I read the uh, the reactions, and I'm like, well, I kind of see that, and yeah. I have a hard time feeling super defined. Like, I feel that way too. I I really enjoyed her essay. I thought it was great. Okay. <laughs> and I yeah, I was really troubled. Well, you're with going the... out. You're going out on a limb by saying that. I know. I know. It's a very public. This is a public forum, right? <laughs> Um, but no, I was really, I was troubled by the sort of knee jerk Twitter reaction to that piece. I really don't think that it's healthy for us to look at things in this black and white way that social media encourages us to. And, and like the shut down this, this issue of Harper's or shut down this essay, yeah. you didn't think that was a good idea? No, no. I mean, she's part of the dialogue and that's a useful, constructive dialogue. And, you know, the, the knee jerk reaction of some, what who calls it the the twitter feminists was that her phrase uh, yeah right? i mean i've heard it many times yeah. yeah yeah which i would consider myself <laughs> a twitter feminist whatever that means you know in some version of that meaning but um no i, I didn't think it was a constructive reaction right yeah, it's useful for us to talk about things with nuance and well i was <laughs> perspective. gonna say, i was gonna say too like even if you find her ideas abhorrent like yeah. if you're a, per, a liberal minded person we should not run from any kind of debate or dissent yeah. you know what i'm saying like even if you think it's idiotic like we shouldn't yeah. fear debate and yeah this this uh tendency to want to just be like you're trash silence shut down absolutely i, I recoil from, i recoil from that yeah. And I think, I think part of what we're seeing, uh, in this like post Trump era is not only a divide between conservative and liberal, but a widening divide between male and female. And I think that's really scary because there's this tendency among, um, you know, and, and I think it comes from a healthy place or it comes from a constructive place, but a tendency to say men shouldn't be speaking right now. And men, sh you know, the problem is men. And I think, you know, 
that's only going to alienate men further from women and it's only going to alienate women further from men to talk in this like black and white dialogue you know it's it's scary to me i can I, I can feel sometimes like okay i'm not that, that's kind of what i'm getting at yeah it's like i i want to weigh in but then it's like well in some instances and this is the truth it's really not my place to weigh in yeah but it can feel i can feel um uh, just like i think a natural human tendency to want to respond when it's all that i'm reading in my feed it's natural to want to react of course but sometimes i'm like you know what this isn't my fight i should be listening more yeah but then other times i can feel where i you know i can feel like i have something maybe constructive to say mm-hmm. or i feel like an authentic you know desire to speak up and at least like chime in but i will not kind of out of a fear of uh, mm-hmm. the response i'm like i don't want to deal with it mm-hmm. it's like that sort of thing and i i, I think that's not good that's interesting. I mean, I really think it's about listening, you know, like if you're listening and adding to the conversation, then you're participating in a constructive way, right? Like uh, one would hope. <laughs> I, I think yeah. too, you know, I think a lot about anger because there's a lot of anger, uh, much of it righteous mm-hmm. surrounding issues like this. Mm-hmm. Uh, any, any number of issues. There's such a thing as righteous anger. Even so, I think it's really dangerous for any human, regardless of gender, anything to, and I speak from experience to, uh, speak or react from a place of anger. Yeah. It feels like a blind emotion to me. Like it feels good sometimes, but it's like a sugar high when you have that, that sense of rage or yeah. you know outrage and you speak out or you're just, you know, your fuse is short because yeah. you've been triggered or whatever. Yeah. I feel like a lot of people are kind of in that angry space and are reacting quickly, I can do it. You know, well, like politic, politically yeah. on Twitter or whatever. It's very easy to just be like, fuck you. you it's know? a culture of hot takes. That's, right. <laughs> That's what we're dealing with, right? Yeah. And I think overcoming that is, it's really hard. Well, visual art, if we're going to do like an elegant segue into the concerns of your book, would mm-hmm. seem to cut against uh, hot takes a little bit, right? People who spend... A lot of time, sort of like a book, you're laboring over a piece of a visual art, a photograph, a painting. It sort of forces silence upon the person who's interacting with it. Mm-hmm. Um, why is this such a concern to you? You you studied it, correct? I did. Yeah, I studied visual art in college. Um, my you, mom is a visual go? artist, Princeton. Okay. Yeah. So at Princeton, when I was there, they had um, no real art major. It was a concentration. So I studied art history with a concentration in studio. Yeah. So I was thinking a lot about the texts that we were reading. Um, but I was also sort of trying to work on my own stuff, which at the age of 19, and it's not going to be super sophisticated, but, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, it's how I grew up. Um, my Wait, mom, what did your mom do? She is, is still a practicing artist. Oh. Um, she had a big studio in our loft in Dumbo. Um, back before Dumbo was Dumbo. Yep. Yep. When it was Dumbo in 1990, just like in the book. (laughs) So, um, so it's the world that I grew up in and it's the way that I, it's one way that I sort of learned how to think. Hey everybody. If you are a writer or an aspiring writer, or if you just love literature, I have a book for you. It's called truth is the arrow. Mercy is the bow a DIY manual for the construction of stories. It is the long-awaited craft book by Steve Almond, based on three decades of his writing career, a career that has featured at turns 
depression, failure, anxiety, self-loathing, despair, self-doubt, loss of faith, delusions of grandeur, and the occasional triumph. It's a book about the writing life. Steve Almond has done it. He has embraced it, the full catastrophe, and he has lived to tell about it. The Boston Globe says, quote, this isn't just a book about writing. It's a book about honesty. And Richard Russo calls it, quote, one of the best books on writing I've ever read. It's also the funniest by a country mile. Once again, it's called Truth is the Arrow, Mercy is the Bow, a DIY manual for the construction of stories by Steve Almond, available from Zando. Go get your copy right now, wherever you buy books. So did you grow up going to galleries and Mm -hmm. all that stuff? Both my parents worked at MoMA when I was growing up, so I spent uh, a lot of time in that museum. What a New York childhood. Yeah. <laughs> wow. Yeah. So, yeah. okay. And so, uh, is your mother, I mean, forgive me for not knowing, would, would, would in the art world, is, is, is she like showing in museums or like, what kind of artist is she? She has a show up right now, actually at a gallery in Bushwick called Sardine. Okay. It's a teeny tiny little gallery, like a sardine can. Okay. Um, yeah, no, she, she shows, um, what what is her work like? She makes um she makes a lot of work about children actually. Um so she right now she's taking pictures of kids in um in uh public spaces like she took some pictures of of kids at this Halloween parade and um some pictures of kids like playing in a fire hydrant water and then she prints them really really big on canvas. Um, with like a textural element um, on the ink. So it's kind of like a, a bumpy, reflective kind of surface. Oh, wow. And then she scrapes away at that. So it's a really interesting effect. The The pictures are big and sort of dramatic. And there's a kind of a fascination, I think, with the unconscious in childhood play. So there's a lot of like turned heads or like concealed faces okay it's interesting but like the visual effect that you're talking about not to make this all about your mom but uh it seems pretty contemporary so it had to have has it changed a lot over the years like is this something she's doing now yeah but like back when you were a kid she was working i guess in different yeah okay yeah one thing i remember really um fondly um, so my parents, my dad like strung up a swing in our living room that I used As to swing As one does on. <laughs> when you like are living in funky Dumbo in yeah. 1990. Yeah. It was so cool. It was like my favorite thing to do to swing on that swing. Meanwhile, in her studio, she was working on a swing made out of glass. So the seat of the swing was glass and it was, um, and there was like an etching on the seat of the swing of a sleeping child. And under the swing was a pile of white sand and the thing was lit from above. So you could, as the swing moved in the the wind or the draft, you know, you could see the projected image of a child sort of swinging on sand below it. It was very cool. Wow. And she actually did an installation of a bunch of those swings um, at the Poland Biennial a few years ago. Um, and instead of... but. I don't know, this is a tangent, kind of a funny anecdote, but they didn't really have any sand in Poland. So when she got there, um, you know, that was part of the installation. If you're looking to start a business, you can uh, bring some sand to Poland. Poland sand, yeah. (laughs) They ended up finding salt for her. So the 
the images were projected on like piles of salt. It was really, really cool. It was like in this like abandoned orphanage building. Oh, in it's a perfect place to yeah. project the ghostly image of a child yeah. swinging over a pile of salt. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, and what did your dad do if he was working at MoMA? He, uh, he was working in the publications department. He writes about art. Um, oh, he does. Yeah. And he makes art books. Do you have any siblings? <laughs> I do. Oh, I have you... a brother. Yeah. Okay. Who teaches snowboarding. <laughs> oh, of course <laughs> He's, he like, does. Totally separate. Where does he from teach? The art world, um, at Vail. At Vail. Yeah. I went to Boulder, so. Oh, fun. I, you know. Yeah. So if you need snowboarding lessons. Yeah. You can uh, talk to Rachel's brother. Yep. If you need art lessons, her mother. Yep. If you want to know what art <laughs> means, talk to her dad. <laughs> if you want to read a novel about art, yeah, read Rachel's book. Yeah. What a family. This is like the this is very Tenenbaumish. It almost feels like. Oh. <laughs> uh, to me, at least, I'm from oh, Indiana. I grew up in funny. Indiana. Like, oh, this really? Is a, yeah. This is like a very sophisticated childhood. By I went comparison. to grad school in Indiana. Where? At uh, at IU. You did? Yeah. You got your MFA there? I did, yeah. Oh, how, did, yeah. how did you like Indiana? I loved it. It was a really different culture, though. <laughs> <laughs> you start chewing tobacco? Oh, then... my God. Oh, no, I played in a little band. We played, like, bluegrass stuff. Good um, for you. I got into it, yeah. You, you got to embrace. Yeah. But it's a, it's beautiful down there. Yeah. And I use fun. It's gorgeous. Um, yeah. Okay. Well, I didn't realize that we had that Indiana connection. Oh, there you go. It's a strange... I mean, there's a lot of strangeness to Indiana. Uh, I haven't lived there since I was like, what, 17, 18 years old. So mm. it's been a long time, but it made its impression. Where did you live? Where like did you just go? suburban Indianapolis, mm-hmm. you know, up yeah. there. So it was, I mean, it's a good place to grow up, but, um, I don't know. I always, I always say it's kind of like a, it, there's a very Southernness to yeah. Indiana yeah. that geographically doesn't necessarily like, it doesn't, it's not what you would immediately think from the outside looking in. Right. We're like, we were like 10 minutes from Kentucky or something, right? Yeah. yeah. It's, you can feel it. <laughs> yeah. You did you, really did you ever drive past like John Cougar's house or anything like that? <laughs> I don't know if I did. I he lives down so. there still, or he's got a place. I remember seeing Meg Ryan once when they were dating uh-huh. in a clothing store down there. Yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. I think they're still together. Oh, cool. Yeah. If we're going to, you know, I want to say I saw them. I mean, who knows? (laughs) I don't keep up that closely. No. Yeah. Um, All right. So you are growing up in Dumbo and this Brooklyn is like, I feel like, and I could have this wrong because I have, you know, not the greatest grasp of Brooklyn, but it feels like Dumbo in the nineties is like Bushwick, like six or seven years ago. Mm -hmm. Like there's a gentrification process that happened, but you did not live in gentrified Brooklyn. That's right. So... You know, Dumbo is a little different from some other neighbor neighborhoods that have gentrified because nobody was living there before the artists sort of settled in the 70s, late 70s. Um, it was just abandoned industrial warehouses, much like Soho or Tribeca. Um, but like Bushwick, there were people living for, you know, before white hipsters moved in, okay. there, were, there were other populations. So it's a different kind of gentrification story. It's like um, kind of taking over a ghost town. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool. You're making use of it. Yeah. And those warehouse spaces are good for, for visual artists. Yeah. Although now, you know, they've been transformed to luxury condos. So it didn't take <laughs> long for the artists to get kicked out. But the real estate values have gone, you know, they've gone up a bit. Skyrocketed. Yeah. Uh, what about the, the falling boy? Yeah. Like this in your book is taken from at least something that happened in your neighborhood as a, as a child. Yeah, there was a similar incident um, in my in the building that I grew up in, um, but I was too young to be aware of it at the time. I didn't really find out about it until my twenties, and at oh. that point, I was already starting to think of myself as a writer. So, a suicide? 
Um, no, no, I think it was an accident. Oh, yeah. Little boy. Yeah. Just fell out of a window or he fell off the roof. Ugh. Yeah. And you didn't, and this was kept from you? Like, the... yeah. Yeah. I mean, who's going to tell a six year old, you know, I probably would. But... Yeah. <laughs> That's why I'm a terrible father. <laughs> Whole different podcast. <laughs> uh, tune in for the special episode next week. Me reflecting on what a terrible father. Of Brad. Uh, well, that's but you know that's interesting. So then, how did you find out about it? Uh, I think I I think I asked some questions. Eventually, my parents told me that it happened. They weren't particularly uh, close with the kids' parents, um, and I think they had we had just moved to that building recently. So we weren't directly related to the tragedy, you oh, okay. know? Yeah. Yeah. But still. Yeah. It's in your building. Yeah. And so, but it, and it, and it obviously made an impression on you. I mean, it's horrifying. Uh, yeah. And, and, but like where, and then when did you start to think I'm going to write about this? Well, um, was I think it... I already knew that I wanted to write about Dumbo in the nineties because it was such a formative part of my childhood and it, it just meant so much to me and I sort of want to memorialize it in fiction. Um, and yet I think when I, when I learned about the kid, that was kind of, that was like an inciting incident, you know, that was like this dramatic moment that I could sort of use as an anchor or like to centralize the story. It's dramatic. Yeah. yeah. And yeah. then, um, the idea for like the self-portrait Mm -hmm. uh, you know, you, you, you were trying to figure out how do I incorporate visual art into this as well? Like this is another concern or. I think that was a little more natural. I think mm -hmm. that just kind of happened organically. Um, cause I'm really interested in the, the selfishness of art, you know, and, <laughs> and the, uh, I the, struggle with that. It's hard. Like when I'm sitting down and I'm like, cause you don't, you never know what's going to come of it. Right. Whereas like day job stuff, you work in a widget factory. You're like, oh, I made 10 widgets today. Yeah. And then I got, you know, punched my card and whatever. I'm going to make X amount of money. Yeah. With art, you're like, this could become some, you know, crazy bestseller or it could make $0. And right. I've spent like years of my life on this right. when I could have been playing with my kids or I, I struggle with that. Yeah. This, like, Cause it's selfish time. Yeah. Necessarily. Necessarily. Yeah. Like what is, uh. What's that book? Oh God. I always want to quote from it. Um, department of speculation. Did you read that? I read parts of it where yeah. she talks about like art monsters. Yeah. You know? yeah. <laughs> in fact, I have a essay about that coming out in new limestone review about that idea of the art monster. Yeah. Are you going to, is that what you want to be? You want to be an art monster? <laughs> no, no. I want to be a human being that has <laughs> constructive and, you know, positive relationships with other human beings. <laughs> Why? What's wrong with you? Yeah. It's, but you know, that's the thing. Like I do envy people and sort of, I feel sort of mystified by people who are able to like go all in that way. Yeah. Like a hundred percent all in on yeah. their thing and their voice. And like they dress a certain way, like their art affects their like, personal style and yeah. they have like a look. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah. And I think it's such a, it's such a fallacy, you know, because great art really is about compassion. It is about human connection. So the kind of impulse to cut yourself off from other people through what, even if it's just through some kind of stylistic, you know, separation, um, it's really, it seems kind of backward to me. Yeah. But I mean, it's, but at the same time, if you get too like tangled up in the lives of other people, it's hard to have time to make art. Mm -hmm. It's like, how do you find that balance? You sort of need to have your own space, like your own imaginative space, your own temporal space, 
uh, you know, physical space (laughs) to do this stuff. Uh, but I think I, it's like putting the air mask on yourself before you put it on the others in yes, the airplane. You right. know, if you're not fulfilling your own spirit, then what use are you going to be to other people anyway? So how do you strike that balance? Like in your own life and work, like, is it the Sackett street? Like you're teaching, you're working with other writers and like giving back mm-hmm. and then you go to your own work. Is that what it is? Yeah, absolutely. I find so much fulfillment in teaching. Yeah. And I have a great writing group. So, um, I'm reading my friend's work. I think you had Ben Lasman on recently, right? Maybe. Back in December, maybe. Jesus. Um, I I hope I did. (laughs) What did he write? Well, he, uh, he wrote a short story for Wired about, um, about a trash island. Oh, it doesn't matter. Okay. Uh, but he's in my, he's in my writing group. A few other people are in my writing group and it's, it's really fun. So I guess there's, you know, there's gotta be some balance between the solitude of writing and the community of, of writers that you participate in. And if I'm not spending time with myself and doing my own work, I'm a terrible member of my community and vice versa. If I'm not engaged with other people, I can't really write about other people because I'm too much of an alien. So <laughs> did you have to learn, did you have to learn that the hard way? Like, do you have a tendency toward like reclusion that can sometimes overwhelm or did you, or you know what I'm saying? Like what, Yeah. how did you come to that? Was it sort of a natural outgrowth of your personality or is it something you've had to work at? Um, I, I mean, I think I need both, but I, I more shy than, you know, naturally than outgoing. So it's more, it's a little bit more of a challenge to be, social than it is to be alone. I love being alone. Yeah. yeah. I, I, sometimes I'm like, yeah, I could just stay back here. Yeah. Do podcasts. Yeah. Sometimes like, you know, try to write. Yeah. Well, I, you have this social thing that you do. I know. It's the podcast this is, thing. I think this is it. Yeah. But it's like, you know, people come over for an hour. We have a good time. We talk, mm-hmm. they leave. I sit here. I talk into a microphone, do like the opening, you know, it's yeah. a weird thing to do mm-hmm. in a way. Mm-hmm. But, uh, and I guess it's like sort of controlled. Yeah. I don't know. There's something really intimate about audio though. You know, I think it's the most intimate medium. Well, but I, I, I've, I've always argued that it shares something in a weird way with fiction. Yeah. Because it's like sort of like people's consciousness is inside of your brain. Mm -hmm. And, uh, like if you listen to a good, especially I, I find like interviews where people are talking back and forth, like as a listener, if I'm. Uh, listening to something like that really connects, it does feel like kind of a similar level of nourishment or something. Yeah. Like that really good, deep feeling. It works on you in a deep way. Yeah. At its best. Yeah. Other times. (laughs) 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 Um, So, okay. So how old are you when you uh, just, I mean, I guess you're, you're born to it. So you probably always thought of yourself as a creative person. I'm going to do something in the arts. Your parents were sort of like a model that this sort of life is possible. Mm -hmm. There's a swing in your living room for Christ's sake. Yeah. I mean, like this was not something that you had to like, you know, conjure on your own. Like this was right there. Yeah. I don't think I, I mean, I spent about 10 minutes when I was like 23 thinking about going to med school. And then I was like, who am I kidding? (laughs) That's not going to happen. No, (laughs) I just had to have that thought like just to like check the box, but now we can just get on with the process of being an artist. Yeah. Um, okay. So you go to Princeton, you're majoring in visual art and are you writing on the side? Like you starting to dabble Mm -hmm. in fiction? Yeah. I was taking creative writing classes all the way through to, I took, I took three or four poetry seminars and then one fiction workshop. 
Joyce Carol Oates. With Joyce Carol Oates, mm. yeah. And she I wrote was... four books during the semester that you... Uh... She probably did. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. In she... fact, she didn't even write them. They just appeared. Yeah, they just like... I get, I get like, a, like an 800-page Joyce Carol Oates galley. Like yeah. every six months, I'm just like, my God. Wow. It just keeps coming. That woman is amazing. Yeah. She is a legend. Um, yeah, and she was terrifying. <laughs> I was so scared of her. What is she like in person? Oh, she's... I mean, she's amazing. She's so smart. She's like so... She And it seems like her, it seemed to me that she knew exactly what she was going to say like years before she said it. Like she was already, she already knew what we were writing before we even wrote it. Um, She's been teaching a while. She has. She's, yeah. 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 She was really um, miraculous. Yeah. But after that workshop, she was pretty hard on a story that I wrote. Um, and rightly so. Uh, it was crap. What was, what, what was wrong with it? What did she say? you know, it didn't really have a plot. And there was, um, I remember she honed in on a really stupid metaphor that I used and sort of deconstructed the metaphor for the class to show how broken it was. That had to be fun. Uh huh. Yeah. I, <laughs> <laughs> Thanks Joyce. Yeah. And being a kind of a shy kid, you know, t- a little timid, I was like, Oh my God, like I'm a terrible writer. And, um, and for a few years after that, I really kind of resisted writing. And I, I was like, I really, I, you know, writing is not what I'm good at. I'm, I must be a visual artist, you know, I, or I must do something else. Um, and I worked in galleries and I, you know, uh, but I would come home after work at this gallery. I was living in San Francisco right after college, working at Crown Point Press, which is this um, printmaking studio and art gallery where there are residencies. They bring in practicing artists to do printmaking residencies. It's a really cool space and a really cool first job out of college. Um, uh, but I would come home after that, and instead of making art, I would write stories. And eventually I realized I needed to take myself a little more seriously as a writer, so I ended up going to grad school at IU. Yeah. Why IU? Uh, fully funded program. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And it's three years, uh, which was really nice. So, uh, two years of coursework and then a year of, of just teaching when you can write your thesis. That's great. Yeah. That's what graduate school. I mean, that's what MFA programs really are at their best. I think is where you're already like fully committed and have been working on your own in whatever pockets of time you can find, but you, you kind of hit the ground running. Like if you go in to be made into a writer yeah. the program's not going to work for you. But if you, if you're like, I'm already writing, I need a place to go hide and work yeah. and be in a community. Yeah. Then, then it can be great in three years. Yeah. That sounds lovely right about now. Yeah. I might go back and get another one. <laughs> <laughs> um, so you, you leave San Francisco and go to Bloomington. I left to San Francisco. I came back to New York and spent a couple years teaching at St. Anne's um, with some old pr- teachers of mine, actually, which was kind of a funny experience. So um, let's stop because I uh, we were talking about this, I think, before we came on. But mm-hmm. St. Anne's is this it's kind of it's kind of legendary in my mind at this point, because this is where Lena Dunham went to high school. Emma Straub, who's been on this show. I just talked to Ivy Pakoda, who blurbed mm-hmm. your book. Mm-hmm. What is it about St. Anne's? Why is it churning out? Like, it feels like, and everybody who's been there, like went to an Ivy League school or like is like extremely well-educated and just seems like I, everyone's got a sort of shine. What the hell? What's going on there? <laughs> well, uh, it's it, it was a really special place when we were there. Uh, so it doesn't give grades. It's very arts heavy. Oh, um, no grades. No grades. Just like impressions. Yeah, we got written reports <laughs> that were like, 
you know, Rachel is a thoughtful young person with a lot of love for life. You know, it's like, like, can she do math? But hey, but look look how you turned out. (laughs) Yeah. Who gives a shit? No one needs math. Yeah. Uh, but I mean, you don't get grades. So this is, I feel like this is case evidence that grades are unnecessary. I completely agree. Who need, yeah. I mean, if this is how people without grades are turning out, then I think we should do away with grading. Oh, well, I have to say I got to college and I was uh, pretty stressed out. Really? <laughs> I didn't understand what was going on. I, the first grade I got in college was a C minus or a, maybe it was a C plus. It doesn't matter. I, I went into the, uh, into the instructor's office and I was like, so this is like a decent grade, right? Because I know there's a D and there's an, an F. So C is fine, right? And he was like, no. He's like, did you go to St. No. Anne's? <laughs> yeah. You're another one of these kids? But Please. you got to Princeton without any grades. That's true. How did that How did that happen if you have no grades? <laughs> well, we had this very charismatic headmaster uh-huh. uh, who is kind of fictionalized in the book. Okay. St. Catherine's. Um, what's where, the, what, what religion is St. Anne's? Is this like Episcopalian or what is it? It was, it's non-religious. It was started in a church. <laughs> There's no basement. gods, no grades. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Totally anarchist. I think Stanley, Stanley Bosworth, who was the headmaster from the seventies or maybe late sixties through early two thousands, uh, was a real character. He was fantastic. Um, did you go to high school with Lena Dunham? Yeah. In the same grade? No, she's a... Four years younger than me or three okay but mm-hmm. she had but you guys have like kind of a similar background because she comes from a family of visual people concerned with the visual arts too yeah that's right, right. in it, fact i think my dad just interviewed carol dunham okay yeah so like are your mom and lena's mom like contemporaries like they are i think so but i mean do they, around do the they same hang? generation no okay no different they circles they don't like make swings together or something no or paint no oh that's crazy so you had a good time growing yeah. up there and then going to school there. Yeah. And you clearly, um, you got the kind of like awesome, like, uh, like New York. It's, it's not, it's in Brooklyn, mm-hmm. right? So mm-hmm. you're right, you know, right across the river from New York, mm-hmm. you have access to the city. Mm-hmm. You've got this great school with all these like progressive, I'm, I'm imagining like progressive teachers and administrators mm-hmm. who are like taking you guys to museums. Yeah. You're learning foreign languages and stuff. Yeah. You traveling. Yeah. We did Latin. Uh. Yeah. I took French and my senior year we went on a trip to Paris. The French class went to Paris. Oh my God. Yeah. I know. It's like totally, totally ridiculously magical. Did you, uh, <laughs> do you speak French? A little bit. A little yeah. bit. Yeah. Un poco. <laughs> right. That's what I always say. Um, okay. And then you go off to Princeton and then you went to I, or then San Francisco and then IU. Mm-hmm. And when you get out of uh, Indiana and you three year master's program, how far along are you? Like what, what did you achieve in your, in your MFA days? Did you get a full draft done? Did you no. write a bunch of bad drafts? Did you dick around and like, what did, cause you know, people, it runs the gamut. Yeah, it's true. No, I, I wrote mostly short stories in grad school. Um, I wrote one novella. I had this great professor, Samrat Upadhyay, uh, who taught a novella class. Um, and actually, two of the guys who were in that class now have books. Uh, and one of them is, I think they're both based on the novellas that they worked on in that class. Well, so it was a really good class. Can we plug them? Let's give them a plug. Yeah, yeah. Um, Michael Manis and Patrick Coleman. Patrick's book just got a... I think it's HarperCollins he just got a contract with. Don't quote me on that, though. Um, anyway, they uh, it was a great class. I wrote a 175-page novella about 
Indiana, <laughs> basically. Did you? Yeah. Well, kind of. It was about like... It's a, called This Place is Weird. <laughs> it's called I Am So a Fish Out of Water Here. <laughs> Why am I playing in a bluegrass band by Rachel yeah. Lyon? What, what did you play? How'd you know? <laughs> um, I play violin. You do, yeah. do you really? Yeah. That's another thing you learned at St. Anne's. Yes. Oh my yeah. God. Yeah, kind of. See, I'm comparing in my head. I went to a big public high school in suburban Indianapolis and it was a good school. Yeah. But it's just, you know. I was always jealous of, of normal kids though. You See, know, growing grass, up, yeah. I was like, why can't I go to a, like a, a school like Saved by the Bell? Or why is my dad Sweet not Valley wearing, High? why is my dad not wearing pleated dockers? Yeah. And, yeah. 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 Like my parents are so weird. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah. you had it, but now you know you had it good. Yeah. Yeah. I appreciate it now. Do you feel like you could ever, I mean, are you in New York for life? Cause New York sort of like LA, I feel like this is something I noticed. Cause I come from a place that everybody left all my best friends. Nobody stayed, mm-hmm. you know, a couple people stayed. My sister's still there, mm-hmm. but most of the time everybody just leaves Indiana. Yeah. To have any chance to, yeah. Uh, people from New York tend to go back eventually. They might yeah. leave and go away and like, oh, I went to San Francisco for a couple of years, but then it's like, I'm going back to New York. Yeah. Are you there for the duration now, you feel like? I think I might be stuck, yeah. I. It's just the only place where I feel like myself completely. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know what it is about New York. People are rude and outspoken and I just feel really comfortable around them. <laughs> <laughs> These people are assholes. Yeah. I love it. Love it. I, but I, I like that too. I like... I. I I kind of like being around people wherever I am, where you sort of know where you stand. Yeah. And there's not like a huge filter. Yeah. Uh, Yeah. I don't totally trust politeness. Right. It's like, what are you hiding? Yeah. You know? Well, and there's also, there can be kind of a menace. Yeah. To, uh, and I I say this as a uh, guy whose parents are from the South. I spent a lot of time in the South. Oh. And there's like Southern manners and this graciousness. And like, there is like an ease to it. But they'll kill you but in your they sleep. Will, yeah, but <laughs> oh, bless your heart. You yeah. know, like that whole thing. Right. Like, it's a little bit, um, like, what is it? It throws you off balance after a while. Mm-hmm. You're like, this can't be real. Yeah. People yeah. in the Midwest has some of that too. Yeah. I'm too paranoid for that. Right. Can't handle so it. So do you still live in Brooklyn? I do. You yeah. Do? Yeah. What I part? In Crown Heights. In Crown Heights. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I, I don't know why I ask. I really don't even know. <laughs> I know like Brooklyn Heights because it's close to the bridge and yeah. everything. And I know Dumbo. Yeah. Williamsburg a little bit, but like once you start to get into the other stuff, I can't even picture it. Yeah. Um, it's big. It's a big place, Brooklyn. It is. Yeah. Uh, and, but, and it, like, do you, in writing about it, um, you know, writing about the Dumbo of your childhood, there's gotta be some nostalgia as there always tends to be when you write about the places of your youth, mm-hmm. but like it, it, it used to be better, right? Did New it? York? Yeah. No. Has it gotten better? Because this, this is, the, I, I say this sort of like, I say this sort of sadly, but it's like, I feel like everyone's always like, yeah, it used to be better. Now it's shitty. It's gotten progressively shittier. Now it's just like a big playground for bankers and rich people. Yeah. And well, that's all that's the artists true. have been priced out. You yeah. know, they're even priced out of Dumbo now, unless you got in. And oh, like, for sure. Yeah. No, there are like no artists left in Dumbo. Dumbo is a really interesting case study because it was kind of hyper gentrified by developers in the late nineties. So uh, all of those buildings were bought up within a very short time period, or some of them were bought in like the eighties and then the developers just kind of sat on them and waited. And so they brought in like high end boutiques and things. Jacques Torres chocolates came in and had free rent for years. I don't even know what um, that is. It's a fancy chocolate company. Okay. Um, but he was given free rent, uh, for a long time and other sort of high end businesses were too, um, to try to attract, you know, more high end 
Oh, that's a good people. strategy. Yeah, great strategy. Uh, and meanwhile, all these uh, all these artists were priced out and kicked out very quickly. My parents, you know, were kicked out along with me um, <laughs> <laughs> and my brother, who was very young at the time. Uh, but yeah, so it all happened very, very quickly. And it uh, there's this writer I really love, Jeremiah Moss, who writes about it, and he calls it hyper gentrification. Um, because it wasn't, it wasn't a sort of natural progression of the neighborhood. I think there are other neighborhoods where you could say, oh, it used to be better, like Park Slope. I miss those diners that used to be there. There were so many great diners. There were great pizza places. Now there's like one good diner still left around. Purity Diner on Fifth Avenue is great. You know, there's like one great pizza place left, but there's also a ton of Starbucks and whatever, you know. And just um, women pushing strollers. That's all I so think. So many strollers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, uh, what about, like, does writing, is there any part of it that you feel like comes easily to you? Are you somebody who sits down? Like, what's your, what is your routine? Hmm. Do you do it every day? Do you have to do it at the exact same time? Are you super disciplined or are you the other kind of person who like, you know, the mood hits you like two or three days a week and you get it all done then? I don't know. Uh, I, you know, it depends on what my schedule is. So this book I wrote the final draft of it while I was working full time. Um, so I was trying to write every morning from like six to eight before work. Um, and that was a really good schedule for me. I got, I was really productive. It was really useful just to know that like, if I don't write right now, I'm not going to write all day. Yeah. Yeah. So that was really good. But now I'm not working full time anymore. I'm teaching, um, I'm doing freelance stuff and I'm writing coaching. So it's a little harder to make myself fit everything into the morning. Um, it's, it's been a little bit less scheduled, which I really, I really need to go back to. It was really useful when I was doing it. Um, but I'm actually looking forward to this residency, uh, next week, a you, week from today, I'm doing a little residency called writing between the vines in Healdsburg, California. Uh huh. Um, just so drink wine I'll get and some stuff done there. <laughs> yeah. You think you're going to write. Yeah. I but think it, I'm going to write, <laughs> but it's a beautiful part of the country. Yeah. That sounds like a good place to go. Yeah. Um, is there a part of writing fiction that you feel like you're best at like dialogue? Are you great at it? I mean, I guess as somebody who is concerned with the visual arts, you might be really good at description or, mm. I don't know. I think description's a little bit of a cop out. I think everybody's best at description, you know, that's really, I don't know though. I mean, some people are really good at like painting a scene. That's true. Other people, great dialogue. Yeah. Other people, like I find really challenging, like super action heavy scenes. Yeah. Like those make, are hard. Making sure people are oriented and making yeah. sure you don't lose, you know, the thread. Like, yeah. That to me can be challenging. But... I know that that one's really hard for me too. Um, yeah, I don't know what I'm best. I'd like to be best at dialogue. I teach a, I taught a master class on dialogue at the Slice Literary Conference in September. Um, and I did so much research for it. It was really fun. I love teaching dialogue. Um, and what I do you reading. teach? What's the, like, what's the, what's the lesson? Let's get like a compressed Rachel Lyon. Oh boy. Yeah. <laughs> for free. Yes. <laughs> Actually give us half of it and then they'll have to pay if they want the rest. Well, it all starts with George Saunders. who says great dialogue is like two cannons firing past each other. Um, and so that's, that's kind of my favorite thing about it. It's kind of like, my one trick, and there are so many tricks to writing great dialogue, um, one of them is to have both 
if you have two characters, have them both kind of concerned with their own problem and sort of talk at each other and past each other rather than to each other. So when you have a lot of, yeah, uh-huh, I agree, you know, all that stuff is that's just trash, you know. Yeah. A lot of a lot of what you're <laughs> uh-huh. doing <laughs> when you I actually I have an exercise that I teach my and my students um which I really enjoy. So you have you write one monologue from one character and you write another monologue for another character totally unrelated and then you have to splice those two together into dialogue and you're not allowed to add anything. And sometimes you know, they work out really well. This is better than I could do. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, I, in fact, I had a student recently who, um, her, her dialogue ended up being about a boyfriend and a girlfriend, you know, leaving for a trip and they had come from totally different monologues and the passive aggression in that, you know, dialogue, because they were both talking about different things was super palpable. It was great. It ended up really, really good. So yeah, that sounds like a good, like good strategy. It's a good exercise. Two cannons firing past one another. Yeah. Uh, what, like, where are you spiritually? Do you have any, like, kind of like we went to St. Anne's, you raised as like a, like a, what atheist anarchist mm, who I speaks just, French and um, plays the violin. Reformed Jew. Oh, you yeah, are. Yeah. Is that, and is that where you are now? Uh, no, it's like, I have like a complicated relationship with faith. I think me too. Yeah. Let's talk about it. Sure. What do you like? What do you like? How do you make sense of life? (laughs) Like what's going to happen when we die? What, how do you make sense of like the human suffering? And like, as we (laughs) talked about earlier, like this kind of crazy cyclical, like three or four or five thoughts that you just keep looping in your head over and over again. Love this like fun, lighthearted chat. Hey, yeah. No small talk. No small talk. <laughs> Plus, I'm, like the reason I do this, I'm trying to get to the bottom of stuff. I need people to tell me what to think. But um, you know, like I just, I always like to ask people because to me, it just seems like the fundamental question, and yeah. it gets to the heart of like, how do you cope? Because I think, you know, as writers, I think part of how we cope is by reading and writing. Yeah. But there also usually has to be some kind of framework that guides a person's thinking or behavior, especially when things are tough. Mm-hmm. Like w- w- what guides you, you, uh, service. Yeah. I mean, I, th- I think, I think listening to other people is really good for me. Um, I'm one of those people who thinks the divine is in human relationships. So I, I don't really, I don't know about God and I don't know what happens after we die. I mean, I think we just turn into dirt. <laughs> it's a cheery thought. Yeah, no, I I'm, I don't love the idea of like heaven and angels, and it, that's actually not in the Jewish tradition at all. It's a little convenient. So yeah, yeah, but I, you know, I think I think we live on in each other's memories. You know, I think that's divine. You know, and and worthwhile and and good to talk about. And I think when I when I feel my worst, listening to other people, whether that's by reading a book about fictional people or watching a film about fictional people or talking to human beings around me. Um, that's where I get my life back. I think just connecting (laughs) with people. Yeah. It does make a difference. Like if you're super isolated or you haven't really had some connection with another like actual human being. Yeah. I feel like this is, I mean, this sort of speaks to, um, like what troubles so many of us in modern times with regard to, our digital existences and Mm -hmm. how, I mean, I don't mean, I guess this is like so commonly, um, there are a lot of hot takes about this, (laughs) but it bears repeating. Like when you're sitting there and you're looking at your phone all day, like just this morning on NPR, 
there was like a, you know, like Steve Inskeep is interviewing some guy. Yeah. And, uh, it's like, you know, you know, I love how NPR is always like, so what do you think about, you know, it's like these, <laughs> these perfectly like mellow tones, uh, you know, the phone and, uh, like how it affects people. And the, and the doctor, long story short was saying that if you have a phone in the room, even if it's like face down or it's powered off, like the, you know, there's like a physiological res- like stress response in people mm. now. Mm. And I think that, I don't know. I just think it obviously leads to, um, more two dimensional interactions and more isolation yeah. and more comparing oneself to other people. Yeah. People, so destructive. people curating their lives online. Yeah. Only showing the good shit. Yeah. You know, it's like, Oh, look at me. Look at my dinner. You know, sometimes I think there's something healthy about that though. Not, not the comparing oneself. I mean, that's, that's poisonous, you know, and, and it's true that if you're in the room with somebody else and you've got your phone on the table or something, you know, you're just not going to have as good of a conversation. You're not going to connect the same way, but I kind of like that people show their best lives on social media. Cause there's a lot of darkness in the world and right. we have a lot of shitty days and like, I don't know if it makes you happy to be like, Hey, I cooked a nice meal. Like look at my nice meal that I cooked and get a lot of likes for it. I'm like, such a small person. I'm, I'm such a small person. I'm like, fuck you. And you're, <laughs> Oh, you can cook. Oh, right. good. Good for you. <laughs> I microwave. Cute baby. <laughs> <laughs> right, I love, I'm glad you're on vacation. Mm-hmm. Have fun with that. Good job. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, I like, that's the thing is that, that sometimes it's innocent. A lot of times it's innocent. A lot of times it's understandable human behavior. People want to, share good news. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I don't know. I mean, I struggle with it a little bit as a writer because I feel like I have to put my accomplishments on social media because how else will people know about it? Right? Like I gotta, you know, if I am reviewed here or there, I write a personal essay or something, which by the way, I'm terrible at, you know? So if I actually do it well, I'm like, Hey, read this thing, you know, and I'm not going to put it up. I'm not going to post like, Oh, I had a shitty day today. I'm not going to say like, I don't know. I'm feeling glum because sometimes I resent it when other people do that. You know, somebody, somebody, uh, my buddy yesterday like texted me and he's like, your last, like, he's like all of your tweets from yesterday read is like a genuine cry for help. Oh my God. (laughs) Are you okay? Uh, you know, I mean, I I was just like, cause I, you know, I can sit there and just go off on Twitter about the dumbest stuff or I'll get it. Like I'll get into like some train of thought, try to create one of those threads. Yeah. And it just, yeah, I'm not good at it. Some yeah. people are really good at it, and yet I, I still do it. I do think it's a very particular talent. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how good at it I am either, but people so, who are really good at it, more power to they them. They know how to go viral. Sure. Yep. They're it, not me. Do you feel, uh, are you a competitive person? Like, to succeed in art, th- this speaks to your book and um, just being an artist, period. Like, you talk about self-promotion. You talk about uh, distinguishing yourself in a huge crowd of people trying to do the same exact thing you are. Mm -hmm. Like, what is it? Is it, is it, I guess it's like a little bit of luck, but you also sort of have to know how to operate. I feel like you got to know the right people. You got to have connections sometimes. Like you have to really want it and be willing to like tenaciously go after it every day. Do you have that? Like, like not just making the art, but I mean like promoting the art and getting the art noticed and, uh, you know, or, or, or do you feel like, you know what, you just do the best you can on the art and the rest will take care of itself 
or not? No, I don't think that. We're, I mean, it's such a crowded marketplace. There are a bazillion writers and a bazillion artists out there, and everybody's hungry. And, you know, it, if you don't get some attention yourself, nobody's going to give it to you. You know, I, I do think we have to be our own best advocates, you know. And I don't think there's anything poisonous about that. Like, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. Particularly, I mean, not to bring it back necessarily to gender, but particularly for women artists, you know, there's, there can be a feeling that it's unladylike or, you know, gross to self-promote somehow. And I, I just think that's a really destructive, self-sabotaging way to think about your work. Well, look, you, you spent however many years yeah. working on this thing in solitude. Mm-hmm. And you go through the hassle of getting it published. Yeah, you should see. It, it seems uh, reasonable that you would spend a, at least a, you know two, three, four, five, six months trying to get the word out about it. Absolutely, there's nothing wrong with that. I mean, it's just my job. That's right. You know, it's part of the process. If you want your book to find an audience, mm-hmm. if you weren't just writing to yourself all those years, mm-hmm. then you have to go do this part of it. Yeah. And I always say to to writers too, uh, enjoy it. Mm-hmm. Like the book tour and going out and connecting with readers and like whatever little victory lap, like, listen, you earned it. Like, yeah, but so it's okay. Try to have some fun. <laughs> I totally Get out of your agree. house for God's sake. <laughs> I totally agree. And I say that as somebody who literally shakes every time I get up in front of an audience, like my whole body like shakes. The trembling piece of paper. Yes. You want to know, you want to know a trick? Oh yeah. Use an iPad. What does that mean? It's heavier. It doesn't shake as much. Oh. The piece of paper trembles. The iPad is heavier. It weights down the trembling. Interesting. <laughs> and you have a PDF and you can scroll. It's like the, the turning of the pages when you have like, <laughs> it's better to use an iPad. Oh my God. I, I did this reading at KGB like uh, last month uh, and it was, it was awesome. I mean, I read with great people. It was such an exciting event. I, I had to hang on to the podium so as not to fall over. Like, <laughs> yeah. it was really rough. Uh, but that was, was that one of your first readings or? It was my first reading from the book. Okay. Yeah. It's yeah. a little nerve wracking. It was, it was nerve wracking. But, uh, do but you it was like so it? exciting. Do you like reading in front of people? I love it. Yeah. Mm. But it's like, I really have to overcome so much resistance. Like my whole body is like flight, flight, flight. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Get out. Get out. Well, you still can. Has it gotten easier as you, I mean, it gets better with practice. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It does. And what do you, do you have like, uh, are you a goal setter? Like, do you have a vision for your career that you are trying to, uh, fulfill or is it less of that and more just like taking it one day at a time? I think I'm a like one year at a time kind of person. So my goal for this year is to finish a draft of my next book. Did you get a, yeah. do you have a publisher lined up or are you just going to take it back out to market? Just taking it back out. Yeah. Yeah. And you have, uh, at least some pages written. Yeah. Yeah. I, I'd like to, I'd like to get it to two thirds, I think by the end of the residency next week, I have about a mm. third of it done. Yeah. Healdsburg. Yeah. What do you stay in like a little cabin up there? I don't actually know. You don't know. We'll see. What's it called? Writing between the vines. Yeah. That sounds great. Yeah. Any kind of retreat. I don't care what it is. Just, I want me in a cabin alone. Yeah. And just total silence in the middle of nowhere. I know. It sounds so idyllic, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> like there's a, I was reading about this. Uh, God, I didn't even know where. I guess it was online. Yeah. It had to have been online. It's like some company that makes these like fully self-sufficient, not Airstream trailers, but like little tiny home pods yeah. that have like solar panels on them yeah. and like some sort of like rain collection 
uh, situation on the roof that gives you fresh water that goes through a purifier. Wow. And, uh, you know, inside it sort of looks like Scandinavian architecture. You know what I'm saying? So mm-hmm. it's sort of like tricked out inside, but it's tiny. Mm-hmm. There's a bathroom. Yeah. Uh, I guess. I, I don't love even the tiny house trend. Yeah. But then you would, uh, you know, like I think what you would do is if there's public land, you'd like have somebody with a pickup truck, like trail, you know, trail this thing up into the middle of nowhere. And you could just hang out in one of those. That sounds so magical. Doesn't it? (laughs) Until like winter sets in. Suddenly you're like, I'm in a fucking, you know, pod. Like I want some Thai food. I want something. But I'm very easily, um, I I can very easily romanticize that sort of thing. Yeah. But then I think the actual is maybe tougher than the imagined. Yeah. Uh, Have you ever done a residency before? Yeah. In fact, I started research for this book at a residency right after grad school. Okay. And where was that? Yeah, That was, um, arts. Oh my, uh, it was, then it was called Lettig house international writers, something. <laughs> in... Yeah. It's in Oh my New York upstate. Oh. Yeah. Really beautiful. Yeah. It was very, it was very interesting. I mean, it was so it was two weeks. Um, and they bring in, somebody from the publishing world for dinner every couple nights. The dinners were incredible. Um, and all I had to do farm to table, all that sort of stuff. Oh yeah. I mean, it was so good. Uh, They had a cook come in. It was amazing. And I met some really wonderful writers and translators. Um, yeah, it was really like luxurious, uh, why did, was, why did you leave? They you kicked know you out? what? If they could, <laughs> if I could have stayed there, I would. have. Hey, I'm just going to bring. A, if you guys don't mind, I'm just going to bring a little tiny, you know, tiny self-sustaining pod, you know, onto your property and yeah. make you know make this my home. Um, what about the business side of writing? Because you go through uh, all the schooling that you went through and the years of drafting and redrafting, and then you do have to go out and navigate the business side of writing in order to get the thing in print. Mm-hmm. I would imagine that growing up in Dumbo, right there with New York City, your parents are in the art world. You had to have grown up around people in publishing. You had you went to Princeton. Like, Did that help? Like, Did you have a network in place when you got to that point that gave you, you feel like, a, a path to publication? Like, Did you know who to hand it to? Uh, kind of. <laughs> I mean, yes and no. I I think I started out fairly naive about most things, but like certainly about publishing. Um, I was lucky enough to meet a, somebody who turned out to be a really good friend of mine now, uh, who is a former literary agent, and she gave me a ton of tips about how to find an agent and how to approach them. And what, the what were some, what were some and, of the tips? Uh. I think the most useful thing was she gave me her login, her former login to Publishers Marketplace. Uh-huh. <laughs> the, what public, Publishers Lunch or what is it? Yeah. With all the deals and... Yeah, with all the deals and, and you can find out who represents whom. Uh-huh. So I I researched, you know, possible agents through that and that was, that turned out to be super helpful. Um, yeah. You know what I find really hard? And it's not just publishing. It's any kind of, cause I'm in the job market right now and I've been writing a lot of emails where you have to write an email to somebody that you want something from. Yeah. That's a pain in the ass. It's so hard. That's a hard writing project. It is. Cause you have to come off confident, but not arrogant. Right. You know, well educated, but not 
an asshole. Right. You, know, like, you have to say that you're competent and that you're excited about the job, but not kiss anybody's ass. Like, yeah. It's so hard. <laughs> right. People think I'm a loser or then right. like, you know, and I think like my uh, inclination when I was going through like query letters to agents and stuff, uh, like my sort of like nervous fallback is to always try to be funny mm-hmm. in a query letter, which plays terribly like 99.5% of the time <laughs> when you're writing to somebody you don't know. Yeah. Like you don't make jokes with somebody you don't know no. in writing. It's just like, who is this guy? Yeah. You know, you can just see him on the other side of the page being like, mm. yeah, yeah. Just delete. <laughs> nope. Yeah. So I always, I've always had to like reel myself in. And, uh, and then my other like thought on query letters is that like, like brevity is the soul of wit. Yeah. Like get in and get out. Yeah. But then I read some people's, like some people write like a, like a 1500 word query letter. That's like gorgeous and convincing I mean, maybe that works too. Mine were always like, I was always like, it should be no longer than like a screen. Yeah. You have to be able to read it in one screen. If they have to scroll, it's done. Yeah. But that's pretty short. It is pretty short. So I don't know, but I I guess like the less I talk, the better my chances of of not offending someone. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good policy. I like it. You know, just like try to get out of there without making an ass of yourself. Um, But you, you know, you had this agent help you kind of give you some guidance. You're looking at publisher's marketplace. You're figuring out, oh, well, this person represents an author. And this is like a very logical thing that I think a lot of writers who are at that stage uh, sometimes tend to forget. It's like, mm-hmm. oh, you know, look for agents who represent books that, yeah, like, uh, you know, are, are similar in yeah. terms of, I don't know, like, uh, is it, do they represent a lot of literary fiction, for example? Yeah. Do they have a certain sensibility that they tend to gravitate to? Like, if you do your homework, you can, you can suss this stuff out. Yeah. And so you were doing that. Yeah. I was really trying to do my homework. Absolutely. Um, yeah. And it, I think the best advice I got was like, agents are people too. <laughs> and they're, this is their job. So they're looking for work that they're into. And if they're into your work, they're going to take you. And if they're not there, you know, it's like so basic. They've got to feel like they can sell it. Yeah. They got it. They want to make money. Exactly. They don't want to spend all this time and and not make any money on it. Yeah. That's their business. Right. And demystifying that process was really important because I think a lot of authors come into it being like, and myself included, being like, oh my God, like, this is my baby, like you know, who's going to take care of it? Will they like it? Will this it is live actually, in the world? It's like such a heady. That's actually a great way to start a query letter. This is my baby. Yeah. <laughs> do, who's you like gonna, it? do you like it? <laughs> Will you help me take care of it? Yeah. Uh, but no, yeah. you know, it, it's like, it, it's very easy to get emotional about your work. And, and I think it's sort of correct to feel a strong emotional bond to a novel that you spent years creating. Of course. It's part of you. It's part of you and you should feel. But when it comes to business, Mm -hmm. and this is something I struggle with, you have to sort of uh, divorce yourself from your emotions. And you have to sort of, you know, and I don't know. I've always found that challenging. You talk about uh, your spiritual understanding of existence having to do with human connection Mm -hmm. and relationships. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, it's like a business relationships tend to sort of, uh, especially when things get difficult, cut against yeah. what you would um, hold up as like sort of the rules of the road for how to be with people. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Like it's when you're true. with people as a friend, it's like, you know, look out for them, yeah. listen to them, be kind and considerate, um, take into account their feelings and how things are going to affect them. And then sometimes in business, it's like, well, it's just business. It's true. And it's a hard, I mean, particularly, I think, in this 
creative sphere, like it's really hard to tell what the boundaries are, <laughs> like especially as somebody who's new to it. So this is, it's my first book. Like I've never done it before. And I spent a lot of time like asking my agent what's okay. Like, is it, what should I be doing here? Right. Like, what, like right. what, how do people behave in this world? Can you please tell me like what the etiquette is? Just tell me and, what like, to do. Yeah, exactly. Cause I don't want to, you know, I don't want to offend anybody. I don't want to cross any boundaries that I shouldn't be crossing. You know, I also want to be as much of an advocate for my work as I can be like, you know, and so that's been, I forget sometimes that that's also what agents are for. They're to tell you how to be a person in the business world that you're in. Yeah. Yeah. They could be essential. Yeah. <laughs> and they're also usually first readers. Yeah. Um, or at least close to first readers. Good mm -hmm. agents tend to have a really good editorial eye. Absolutely. I think just as a function, I mean, they're, they're, they're into books for a reason, but I think, you know, agents read so much. So much. And they I read, can't even imagine. They read a lot of garbage. They yeah. read a lot of great stuff. So they, they sort of know when things are working. Yeah. Um, so that can be, I mean, that's a valuable part of it. Yeah. So you found an agent. Yeah. How did that happen? Uh, so I found her through, well, so actually it was a little bit of a St. Anne's connection. When I was teaching, uh, elementary school at St. Anne's working on my portfolio for grad school, living with my parents, having a bad time in general financially, yeah. <laughs> but, um, you know, deciding to be a writer basically, um, I was teaching, which it, by grade. the way, is the cure to having a bad time financially. <laughs> Just write some fiction. <laughs> You'll get right out of that hole. If you take one thing away from this podcast. <laughs> this is the path to riches. Yes. <laughs> Fortune and fame await you. <laughs> um, so I had a student whose father is a literary agent. And I remembered his name, you know, years later when I was actually looking for an agent. And I discovered that his wife is also an agent. And she was representing you know, work by young women writers. Huh? Um, What's her, who's your agent? Meredith Cavill Simonoff. Okay. She's, is she, wait, is she David fabulous. Simonoff's? Eric Simonoff. Eric Simonoff. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I'm thinking, I don't know. I'm, I'm probably confusing, but I have a friend or two who's represented by Eric, I think. Oh yeah. I'm sure that's true. He, yeah, he has a great clientele. Um, as, as does she, uh, but she seemed like a really good fit. So I wrote her a query letter telling her about, you know, Hey, like your stepkid was a student of mine and, you know, I'd love for you to take a look at this thing. It seems like it'd be up your alley. Um, here's a synopsis. And she wrote back like literally. So I had this manic week of like, I took time off work. I knew that I was almost done with the book. I finished the book. I spent like 36 hours editing it, you know, barely slept, didn't go to work. And at like 5 PM on a Friday, I finished the editorial and I was like, if I don't send it out now, I'm going to spend all weekend obsessing about this. So I sent it to her and she wrote back like 30 minutes later and was like, cool, I'm going to take a look. You know, um, I love the sound of this. I got another email on Saturday that was like, I'm, you know, 50 pages in, I'm loving it. Stay tuned. And on Sunday I had this beautiful email in my inbox. It was like, the five? email we all want. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it was like a five paragraph essay about my book and, you know, how she saw it in the canon of literature. It was, it was so beautifully written. Do you realize though that that is like by now in her career, she's got like a form email and oh, she yeah. just copied them. She just like find and replace. She just put you. <laughs> Listen, that is not possible. <laughs> just find and replace, put Rachel in for Susan and oh. you know. 
demystifying but... <laughs> the process. No, it was really remarkable. It really was. I'd never seen anything like it. I remember she... I got the email. I had just gone to a big like blockbuster Marvel movie with my uh, boyfriend at the time, and uh, now husband. And he, uh, we were coming down the escalator at like the multiplex and I opened my phone and I, I saw this email and I just like read the whole thing out loud to him. I was like crying, you know, like, I can't believe this is happening. She you know? got it. It was, yeah, she and... really, really got it. Yeah. And I was like, if she can talk about the book this way to me, she can absolutely talk about it this way to publishers. Right. So good sign. It was convincing. Yeah. And you know, the speed too. Yeah. I feel like good things happen fast. And, yeah. and when it comes to like art and literature and deals and stuff like that, yeah. if it's, if it starts to get long and drawn out, if like she doesn't get back to you for three weeks, it's probably not happening. Yeah. But sometimes I guess it, people are just super busy. I mean, I've heard it work the other way too, but usually it, it goes quick. Yeah. So then when she takes the book out to sell it, uh, to the marketplace, what is that like? Um, so we spent like Labor Day weekend doing a round of edits by email. Um, and extensive edits or pretty like uh, small brush stroke stuff small stuff okay. yeah she she found a few you know inconsistencies and uh what do they call it in film um continuity glitches yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. that's good stuff like that yeah no it was really really good um so we fixed those and then we went out to publishers with it and i think it was only a couple weeks later that we got an offer from scribner um it was amazing. We went in for the editorial meeting. They made sure I could walk and talk and, you know, they took it. That was it. It was cool. So you, yeah. and you, were you there? Like you walked out of that meeting and you're like, I got a book deal or was it, you met them and then left and then your agent talked to them and then yeah. called you. Yeah. It was, it was like three days later. Yeah. But you had a good feeling. Yeah. Well, I didn't know how to feel, you know, cause Again, I'm so new to it. Like I, I, I didn't know if this is the way it goes for everybody. I didn't know if it just felt positive because they know what they're doing, or you know, like I was afraid that I was a total freak in the meeting. Like <laughs> I had no idea how it went. Yeah. Um, but it was a Friday, and the weekend passed, and I tried not to get my hopes up. And on Monday, she said they made an offer. Wow. Yeah. That's exciting. It was. Yeah. Where were you? Were you at home? I was at work. Oh. I was at that full time job. Yeah. So I took the. I took the call in like the little cafeteria area, like the one room thing with the, you know, everybody's lunches in the fridge. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Like yeah. the old food, just like putrefying <laughs> in the refrigerator. <laughs> yeah. My agent was like, guess what? You know, this is, and I was like, wow, that's, that's great. And she was like, you sound very much not excited. <laughs> like what's wrong with you? I was just in shock. I had no idea what was going on. <laughs> plus like, plus like after all that time, like sometimes there is a weird anticlimax too. Like I, I feel like this happens a lot, especially with debut authors, because it's the first go round. But you're like, this thing's going to be a book. And there's, there are all these false summits. Yeah. Like the day you get your galleys, you're like, oh my God, it's a physical object. You yeah. know, you can hold it. The day that, you know, then there's publication day. Yeah. Which is, and then you like walk into a bookstore and you see it. And yeah. You're like, you know, and then, but then you're like, oh, I sort of feel like it's like a sugar high. Like you come down from it pretty quickly and you're like, what's the real thing? And I think, uh, what I usually hear from people is that when you go through all those ups and downs and you, and you enjoy those moments, mm -hmm. you know, the, ultimately the best part about the whole thing is when you're like sitting at the keyboard, having a good day. 
Yeah. I mean, not to make it sound too precious, but right? No, I think I think that's true. I mean, I'm I'm not there yet because I'm still on the sugar high. You're, you're you know? like, I'm so high right now. <laughs> Don't bring me down, dude. No, no, not at all. I mean, I think that's th- so. It's true that there are all these false summits, and I I have had weird moments where. You know, even at the at the book launch on Monday, you know, people were coming up to me being like, are you so excited? Are you so excited? And I'm like, yeah, I think so. You know, like, <laughs> I, I, like, I'm not quite sure how I feel right now. Um, but on Wednesday, I think it was, it was reviewed on Fresh Air. And that was amazing. Whoa. That 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 was like the first time in this whole process that I've really like been sitting by myself just smiling with pure joy. Um, and then that goes beyond sugar. That's that like, was, it was amazing. Yeah. That was cool. And, and then on Saturday when I was in the airport waiting to fly out here, I got an email from someone who read the book, uh, whose child had died in 2014. And he said that reading the book was a really meaningful experience for him and his wife. And you know, that he felt that I had written about grief in a way that he really identified with. And, and that was, that was worth everything. Like that was incredible. That's like my work here is done. Yeah. Like if nothing else happens with this, yeah, I think that's exactly right. Like you can be, you know, I think as a writer, you hope to connect with as big of an audience as you can, Yeah. but really it's like a one-to-one thing. Absolutely. And if you hit somebody like that and then they take the time to tell you, like, forget it. It's just like they say in actual fiction writing, like the specific is the universal. Right. Yeah. That's awesome. I'm like getting choked up thinking yeah, about that. Yeah, it was really moving. But so how do you, how do you um, I mean, if you did, if you were able to write about grief in a way that was accessible to somebody who lost a child recently, like, do you have like a lot of experience with grief? Have you been through deep grief yourself? Like, is it something you've, you've kind of like uh, had to cross that river? You know, no, I actually have been really fortunate. Uh, I haven't lost many people very close to me. Um, but I did, you know, I did lose both of my grandmothers the year that I started the book. So that, that might've had something to do with it. So you were feeling it. Yeah. I mean, everybody can sort of access grief. Yeah. Even if it's not like extremely immediate or you have like, it's not something you want to have a ton of experience in, frankly. (laughs) Of course. If (laughs) If you you can can avoid avoid it. it. (laughs) (laughs) It's good to be inexperienced. Yeah. Um, well, wow, that's awesome. And that's pretty quick too. I mean, the book just came out and you're, yeah. already, you're already getting letters like that. Yeah. yeah you saved that one? Uh, yeah. Print it out? Forever. Yeah. That's like, it's good to have those on hand for like down the road, some yeah. shitty day where you're, you're stuck. You're like, okay, this is why I'm doing this. <laughs> no, it reminds you that. So back to that whole conversation of selfishness, you know, it reminds you that this work is not about selfishness. It's about accessing something universal in the human experience. And if that reaches somebody else, you're doing work of service. You're not doing, you know, work driven by ego. If you're really doing it well, even if, even if it's just like 1500 people read it, yeah, 500 people, yeah, 15,000, like whatever the number is, like that part of it seems out of one's control. It takes a little bit of luck and some sort of magical fairy dust. Um, I have talked with what more than 500 writers now. And so many times the conversations land on this question of like, how do you find a readership? What does it take? What role does luck play? How do books actually sell? And it usually like, I think we, it's like some variation on like, I guess like word of mouth Mm -hmm. and then like some lucky media. Mm -hmm. Um, but I feel like there's some 
weird magical thing that happens with certain books that meet the culture right at a moment or at a time when the culture is ready for it. Yeah. Like people want this story right now in mass Yeah. for reasons related to the collective consciousness that one could not possibly game out. You know yeah, what I'm saying? Like, yeah, really well said. Yeah, that's it. That's true. And I don't, I don't think yeah. anybody like, I mean, you talk to people who've had that like weird ride where like mm-hmm. their book sells up like 2 million copies. Yeah. Uh, I mean, yeah, you're sort of dreaming of that, but how could you, it's not like you're playing like 20 dimensional chess or whatever. No, it's totally out of your control. All you can do is be the best advocate for your work as you can be and write the best product you can write and, you know, hopefully work with good people and, to bring it out there and, and feel yeah. a sense of, um, what's the word satisfaction maybe comes close, but feeling, being able to feel satisfied with that one email. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? Like yeah. that's still service. It's an important service. Yeah. And you probably will, will, uh, be of use to people who don't necessarily track down your email address and take the time to write. But you, if you're if you're measuring success or failure based on the number of such emails that you get, yeah. that doesn't seem like you're going to be very happy. Well, I mean, how diminishing is that to the humanity of the people who are writing right. you? you know? <laughs> Not enough. No. Need some more people pouring their heart out. Yeah. I need no. like five of these a day just to sustain me. <laughs> Bad manners. Yeah. <laughs> Terrible. Uh, so will you give us any hints about what your next book is about? Yeah. So I'm, I'm writing about... Um, I'm writing about a young woman who has a relationship with an older man who's sort of a mentor figure uh, who ends up being a horrible person. (laughs) Wow. Yeah. That sounds juicy. Yeah, I hope so. Okay. We'll see. Is this is this this like drawn from life experience? No. 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 Pure fiction. Pure fiction. (laughs) She winked. She winked at me as she said that, ladies and gentlemen. I did not (laughs) let it state for the record. There was no wink. Uh, Rachel. (laughs) It's so great to meet you. Thank you for coming over. Congratulations on your debut. Thank you. And, Thanks uh, so much for having me. Have fun. fun. Have fun up in uh, wine country. Thanks. I've heard people say that. All right, guys. There you go. That's Rachel Lyon. Her uh, debut novel is called Self-Portrait with Boy. It's available now from Scribner. Go get your copy. You can find her online at rachellyon.work. She's on Goodreads. She's on Twitter. Her handle over there is at manateesintrees. She's on Instagram. Uh, her handle there is Appleide. She's on Facebook. I don't know what her handle is on Facebook. You can find her, though. She's on the internet. Rachel Lyon, self-portrait with boy. One of the more celebrated debut novels of the season. Thanks to Barry White for the music today. R.I.P. Thanks to Kill Rock Stars and the band Stereo Total for the show's theme song music and the uh, transitional song at the top. Thanks to the Preservation Hall Jazz Band for the music uh, that I played under the uh, Patreon spot, patreon.com slash otherpplpod. Don't forget to get the Other People app. That's free. If you want to write to me, you want to send me an email, the address is letters at otherppl.com. Let me know what you think. Tell me a story. I don't care. Just say something. Letters at otherppl.com. And listen, if you, you know, if you like holidays, if you like to have a little reminder and make a thing about it and join in with the group, you know, it's possible that I could have a bad attitude. I've been guilty of that, you know, before. I I find it hard to shake, though. I can't shake it. Can't get into this. Can't do it with authenticity. 
It's not like I go around trying to ruin people's time. I mean, I'm doing it a little bit on this show, but I, you know, go ahead. Have your party. I'm not going to rain on anybody's parade, just to mix metaphors. You know what I'm saying? But you want my opinion? That's my opinion. There's a, what's it called? Eros? Isn't that what it's called? One's ability to access Eros. The erotic. What do you call it? It's very strongly tied to the ability to dance easily and well, which is uh, remote and distant for me. I can't dance either. I need to connect with this. There's something wrong with me. It's a deficiency. Perhaps there are people out there who are experiencing Valentine's Day in ways I could never fathom. I'm willing to entertain that possibility. If you have thoughts on this, let me know. Imagine me dancing to this song. Got a lot of work to do. Got to work on myself. That's what I feel like. I hope you're having a good day. And I mean it when I say this. If you're listening and you hate Valentine's Day and you're feeling lonely or alone, fuck that shit. Just let it go. Trust me. You're fine. Just the way you are. I love you. It's okay. I feel like there should be some sort of a defiant attitude that should take hold. Embrace your aloneness. Revel in it. Go out in public. Fuck with people. Give yourself flowers. Stuff your face with chocolate that you yourself bought for you. I gotta wrap this up. I gotta get inside. It's the night before Valentine's Day, but like things are going on my house my daughter's making valentines for school my mom is here she's trying to encourage my wife and i to go out tonight since she could be here to watch the kids but that's a lot for my mom do i is it gonna happen like wearing a hoodie i don't want to change do we just go out i got the dog i think we would have to bring the dog because i can't uh, take and it's a puppy we put it in the crate it's probably gonna bark it'll be hard for my mom to deal with the dog two kids so then we have to take the dog to dinner it's a little cold out we got to sit there with the dog in our lap while we're trying to eat it just seems ridiculous (laughs) 